This is episode 27 of Ripe Good Scholar, the creation of the first folio. What I'm really hoping is that they assumed the one was the apprentice and the apprentice is like, you know, in the afterlife being like, I didn't even make that many mistakes. Shut up, it was you. (laughs) This is Stephen Greenblatt, author of Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics, and you were listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. In 1623, a folio edition of Shakespeare's plays was printed for the very first time. Between 750 and 1,000 copies were printed, 235 of which survive today. Without this book, we could have lost up to half of Shakespeare's plays. It's hard to imagine a world without so much Shakespeare, or with a Shakespeare that is so famous within our culture. But without the first folio, we wouldn't have the Shakespeare that we have today. For this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Emma Smith, author of Shakespeare's First Folio, amongst other books. If you want to learn even more about the First Folio than we were able to cover today, please head over to ripegoodscholar.com slash EP27. Now, let's head to 1623. So we're going to start by discussing the handful of people who made the first folio possible. Yes. Wait, wait. I think I know one of them. Was it William Shakespeare? I mean, yes, but he wasn't in my outline because he wrote the plays, yes, but that's about all he did. Oh, that's barely anything. He was dead for several years before the folio was published. Emma Smith put it really well. One of the things I love about the Shakespeare First Folio is there are lots of contingencies and there are lots of humans uh, and enterprise and, you know, financing and all these real world factors which combine to to make this book. And and in a funny sort of way, Shakespeare, who is long out of the picture, is almost the least of it, is the least of the kind of human drama that, that brings the book into the bookstores. Ah, and I'm sure his uh, wife and surviving child. No. They didn't get any of that, that that sweet, sweet cash? I don't think so. Copyright law was not really a developed thing back then. We'll get into that after we talk about the people, but basically the company owned the plays. Ah. Which is still a thing in our copyright law. Anything you would write for your workplace is copyrighted by your workplace, not you, because they paid you to write it. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, we'll we'll come back to that as we get into more of the production of the first folio, but I wanted to get to know the people behind it first. But by the way, you, the way you keep talking about the people behind this, I'm just picturing uh, like a 
1980s sitcom opening with all of these renaissance men just like palling around as they get going on this first folio. Sure. You keep imagining that. I will. Kind of the biggest force behind the first folio were two of Shakespeare's fellow actors, uh, John Hemmings and Henry Condell. I have not heard of either of these people. Well, yeah, I mean, with the amount I know about Shakespeare, at the moment, I could name two of the actors in the troupe. So probably for them, if we did have anybody involved in the production of the first folio being driven by sentimentality, it was probably them. They knew him. They worked with him. They knew the plays intimately. It may have, for them, been preserving the, you know, works of their friend. Oh, that's nice. Also got to get that cat. Well, we don't know for sure, obviously, but... There weren't, like, a whole lot of folios. Like, this wasn't a guaranteed moneymaker, as Emma Smith put it. With hindsight, I think we can overstate the eagerness with which people must have wanted to read these works by Shakespeare. So to us, with the value we put on Shakespeare, of course it seems a kind of no-brainer that if you're going to have this new book of all Shakespeare's works together, all Shakespeare's dramatic works together, it would just, you know, fly off the shelves. It would be an absolute winner. I'm not so sure that that was true at the time. Oh, okay. So if they were after cash, this is not a great way to do it, but... Mm, not necessarily. Okay. But Hit or miss. Yeah, and we'll get more into the reception of the first folio at the end, but they also wrote some of the introductory letters which kind of give the reason why they made this. Now, it wasn't so much sentimentality, although they did have some of the lines in there, like every word he wrote just came out of his head, which is just wrong, just not a thing. <laughs> they are the ones that really created this image of the sole author. Interesting. Um, Emma Smith put it really well. They really did. The 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 um, two actors who sort of present the work uh, in in print, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, they begin this myth really that Shakespeare's like Zeus or some somebody. You know, it just all kind of comes straight out of his head. Uh, the, he never blotted a line. You know, his manuscripts were completely clean. He just was a you know the sort of definition of a genius. Uh, I mean, Shakespeare I think was a genius, but he was a working genius who. We redrafted, reworked, um, you know, tinkered, took time, you know, took time and care over his work like any any great writer. Now, as kind of a, I won't want to say foil, but a contrast to Condell and Hemmings, we had Ben Johnson also involved. Ben Johnson! Who was Shakespeare's friend. Like, they knew each other, but he was not someone who was perpetuating this image of, like, he was a genius. Was did, did, didn't, wasn't he one of the guys who was drinking with Shakespeare the night before he died? It wasn't the night before, but yes, according to legend. There's a blog post all about it over at ripegoodscholar.com. I always get a kick out of Ben Johnson because like he's the one who said Shakespeare had little Latin and less Greek. When the actors wrote that he never blotted a line, he writes, would he have blotted a thousand like, I don't think he, that was in the first folio, but that's what he said. Like Ben Johnson's over here like, no, 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 no. Ben Johnson doesn't mince words. 
Emma Smith actually had a really interesting take on the Johnson-Shakespeare relationship. Ben Johnson's got a really sort of love-hate relationship with Shakespeare. Uh, he's a really important figure behind the Shakespeare First Folio. I think his collected works gives the model for this book, um, gives something uh, to imitate and to emulate, uh, and he uh, he prepares this um, elegy for Shakespeare, which is an important part of uh, you know, um, not for an age, but for all time, that kind of uh, that kind of angle. They're like friends who like to mess with each other. At the same time, Ben Johnson wrote a lot of plays that uh, wealthy people like to read and no one liked to perform. Whereas Shakespeare wrote a lot of plays that people like to perform, but don't read as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd say no one likes to perform, but... I will say no one likes to perform Ben Johnson plays today. I'm sure there's someone out there. There's someone, but that person doesn't have enough friends to put it on. <laughs> Come at me. That's hurtful. Don't alienate potential listeners. Come at me. Additionally, what's interesting about Ben Johnson's involvement is that his 1616 folio was really the precursor for Shakespeare's. What is the 1616 folio? It's a folio of Ben Johnson's plays. Ah. Which is why we have a fair number of them, I think. So it came before the first folio. Yes, but it wasn't a folio of Shakespeare's plays. When we talk about the first folio, we're talking about Shakespeare's first folio. Yeah, but it's really Ben Johnson's third folio is what I'm hearing. No, but... Oh, my God. (laughs) (sighs) Now, he also wrote an introductory passage, although any further editing that he did of the text, we just... We'll never know. We'll never know what kind of... um, hand he played in that um now i i was interested in getting emma smith's input on this and she really was just we don't know the question of how the texts appear in the first folio is uh is is a really fascinating one and we we absolutely don't know the answer so sometimes uh john hemmings and henry condell are called shakespeare's first editors um, but we don't know how much of what editors now do they did to the plays in some ways the the book shows the absence of an overall you know a kind of copy editor kind of pe- person so nobody's gone through and kind of organized you know stage directions or whether you get a list of the characters what what later we would call the dramatist personae some plays have that some plays don't nobody's done that for the shakespeare uh, folio but somebody definitely has been making decisions or a group of people have been making decisions about sort of textual choices um because when i was reading shakespeare's library by stuart kells he implied much heavier editing on johnson's part now some of that might be based on you know, quarto versus folio editions. But again, there's no paper trail, mostly because of all the fires. Yeah, there were a lot of fires back then. It is reasonable to believe that he may have polished up some parts that the actors didn't quite remember or they didn't have a text for, but... Blotting out some lines. Yeah, I mean, maybe they stopped him at like a thousand. Now, of course, you can't have such a big undertaking without someone forking up the cash. Who forked that cash? Uh, His name was... Edward Blunt, he appears to be the one who saw the potential for financial success in the first folio. Again, we have Emma Smith providing this great description of Blunt. Quite a visionary uh, publisher called Ed Blunt, 
uh, a London publisher who is well known for really serious literary publishing. He publishes uh, Don Quixote, he publishes the works of Montaigne. He's, he's, he's interested in what we would now call literary publishing, unlike many of his fellow professionals who are really publishing loads and loads of sermons and religious material and legal material. He's publishing kind of literary material and he seems to have, probably he puts up the money or a good bit of the money uh, to bankroll this big, big project. So he was someone who was good at seeing value in things that other people were skipping over. I don't know his whole history, but I, assuming there were some flops, but maybe he was just more willing to take the risk. Because, as we'll see later, there is some debate over how successful the first folio was. So finally, then, we have the printers, um, which was done in a father-son print shop of William and Isaac Jaggard. Their shop was pretty well known. They had printed... A lot of things, uh, they even printed Shakespeare's, um, some of his quartos, uh, which were printed by Thomas Pavier, uh, which, um, as Emma Smith put it, testing the water, potentially testing the waters for a first folio. The printers of the first folio, the father-son Jaggards, they had been involved in a kind of speculative publication of serial publication of Shakespeare's plays about three or four years earlier, sometimes called the Pavia Quartos. They were in conjunction with a, a stationer called Thomas Pavia. And we used to think the Pavia Quartos were uh, a sort of pirated edition trying to make money out of uh, Shakespeare or the King's Men without their permission. But I think we now think that maybe the Pavia Quartos were sort of testing the market a bit was there a market for this kind of work? And that it, it was the response to that publishing which kind of galvanized uh, the folio consortium to think about putting, putting the, the plays together. But what dedicated listeners will want to pay attention to is the name Thomas Pavier, because he is the one, we've recorded this episode already at this point, but he is the one that um, printed a series of Bandello stories and also published North Hamlet. Oh my goodness gracious. It all comes together. It's all coming together. Um, so now that we've kind of introduced ourselves a little bit to the Jaggers, we'll get more into the actual printing process. It was a long and arduous process because before printing, publishing, anything could even begin, they had to get the rights to publish previously printed plays. Now, copyright, as we as we discussed before, wasn't kind of what we think about today when we think of copyright. So publishers would register the printing rights to any plays they wanted to publish. Presumably, they would work with the acting troupe to like pay for the text that would be published. But there was no registry of that. Okay, so there could have been a publisher who just decided to be a jerk and then he would have the rights. However, Emma Smith laid it out pretty well. So the question of the rights to those plays uh, it is a little bit confused, actually, in this period. There's no such thing as copyright quite. But if you are a publisher, you can register your rights to a particular text by paying to have it entered into a big ledger called the Stationer's Register. 
the sort of guild of stationers, as it were, that who, who regulate the printing industry. They keep a copy of who has the rights to what, and they try to enforce the the, the rights of those uh, holders against illegal illegal printing. And there are examples of them confiscating illegally printed stock. Now, approximately half of Shakespeare's plays had already been published at this point. Yeah, they were published in little quartos, which were like pamphlets with one or two plays in them, right? Yes. Now, most of the plays that had been published already were his earlier works. Yeah? So, like, the really, really bad Henrys? I think so, yeah. But also, like, Midsummer and things like that. However, if it weren't for the first folio, um, we probably would have lost... Macbeth, Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Twelfth Night, Antony and Cleopatra, and The Winter's Tale. Oh, wow. Among others. Yeah. yeah, we would have lost about half his canon. Which, when you think that estimates place um, somewhere around like 80% of what was written at the time has been lost, it's amazing that we have as much of his stuff as we do. Yeah, that that's, that's incredible. Like, we have so many of his plays. 80% of what was there then? What was written at the time. So what they would have to do is negotiate for the rights of those previously printed plays and register the rights to the ones that they were about to print. What that meant was going to the publishers that held the rights and negotiating with them. Um, whether that meant just paying for it outright. There were a couple of them that appeared to accept a cut of the profits in exchange for the rights. Now, one hilarious holdout was Troilus and Cressida. Really? Yes. But that play is super lame. Yes. It had been registered to Henry Wally in 1609. Troilus and Cressida was not in, like, the table of contents of the first folio. <laughs> it just kind of got stuck in there outside of page order. It's also possible, we don't have any of them, but it is possible that a few copies of the first folio were sold without Troilus and Cressida in it. Wow. Because it was a, such a late-in-the-game edition. Emma Smith laid out the possible reasons for why this could have happened. Either because Troilus and Cressida is a runaway success, and so it's valuable, but probably actually because it wasn't a runaway success and he's got tons of unsold copies that he thinks he will never sell if it's available now in this big deluxe set. Uh, Wally seems to be holding out, um, and it looks as if Troilus and Cressida is not going to—they're not going to get the rights, and it's not going to make it into the first folio. So the catalogue page to the first folio, which lists the comedies, histories, and tragedies that are in it, doesn't have Troilus and Cressida on it. It was already printed before this rights negotiation came good. One of the things I loved seeing when I went around looking at lots of copies of the first folio is a lot of people have written in the, the catalog page uh Carlos and Cressida to kind of correct uh, correct the uh sort of table of contents <laughs> <laughs> oh man and you know it's the second one. Oh yeah what am I gonna do with all these Charles and Cressidas oh man <laughs> Why did I sink all of my fortune into Troilus and Cressida? Once they had the rights secured, the actual printing process could begin. So the big expense up front was paper. Because all paper that was suitable for printing was made in France. None of it was made in England. Wow. 
with the folio, how it was made, you know, was you'd have multiple pages printed on a big sheet that would then be folded into the smaller um, kind of chunks that would then be assembled into the folio. There's a name for the smaller chunk that I should know. Form. They're called forms. In order to, one, figure out which words were going on which pages, and to allow for the printing of multiple pages at once, there would be people in the print shop whose job it was to estimate how much text would fit on a page. And this was always someone who was very good at printing, obviously, because you couldn't be way off or everyone's screwed, especially because they were printing multiple pages at once. Yeah, I think this is a lot easier now that we have InDesign. Sometimes they were a little wrong and copiers would have to get a little creative to fit the spacing, <laughs> which is where sometimes you would see words be condensed down by like just having the apostrophe, which is hilarious to me because we always learned that that was to help delineate rhythm. Yeah. And I was like, sometimes it might have just been because the copier needed to fit words on the page. So wait, not only did Shakespeare uh, work with others as he wrote. Not only did he rip off historians almost word for word, not only did he almost never write an original story, but also a good bit of the language w depended on how many lead letters could fit on a page. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I don't know if I'd say a good bit of the language because like, they were still his words. The weird punctuation choices. Yeah, it's collaborative from beginning to end. Oh, absolutely. So then the letters were laid by hand, inked. Now inking, like it was a skill because if you did too much, you wouldn't be able to read it. If you did too little, it would not. I, re I remember this week in art class. Finished pages be checked for errors and then those errors would be corrected and they wouldn't like toss out all the bad ones they would just not. fix it <laughs> <laughs> this whole process well i mean when you think about how much paper costs oh yeah i understand it there's a lot of cost in the paper there was a lot of manpower in manually setting type yeah but because... also it's just such a haphazard process and I love that. It appeals to me on so many levels. So between the mistakes made and other choices, we've actually been able to identify um, how many like copiers were involved in the process. Like um, there's one we're actually pretty sure is an apprentice, I guess, because there were lots of mistakes and it wasn't on the like super important parts. But yeah, we were like most of them we don't have the names for, but it I think. I think it was like... I mean, it was Willie Jags for sure, right? Well, that was the father, and he was actually aging. So he was probably more running the business than doing the actual printing. Yeah, the people actually lying the, laying the type and print inking it and all that jazz were like apprentices and people like, you know, lower on the totem pole, I think. But I think there were a half dozen or so oh. people involved. And we actually can identify who printed what. That's cool. To an extent. I mean, as much as we can. And, you know, it's like person A, person B. Okay, so, like, do you think some of the historians have mean nicknames for some of them? I mean, probably. What I'm really hoping is that they assumed the one was the apprentice, and the apprentice is, like, you know, 
in the afterlife being like, I didn't even make that many mistakes. Shut up, it was you. <laughs> now, it took approximately 18 months to print the book. Wow. Yeah, which, you know, when you look at the size of the book... Makes sense. Yeah, it does. But also, they would occasionally stop printing to print books that we presume they felt were more important to get done. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Smith was talking about. I don't know if this is a work that isn't really top of their priority list, perhaps because there isn't an author kind of banging on the door saying, where's my book? You know, there isn't anybody really driving this process, but they keep stopping printing the Shakespeare first folio because they're printing other books. Like <laughs> there's one that always makes people laugh, which is something called something like the, a description of Leicestershire or something, which you just think that's a book which has been completely lost really to, to history. Um, but, but at that point for the Jaggers, it seemed the more important thing to get through the press. What if it was a, the best freaking book, though? What if this was, like, Leaves of Grass good? <laughs> I somehow doubt it, but okay. It is worth noting that binding would often be done separately by the buyer. Oh, okay. That's weird. Well, they could put their family crest on it or, you know, do, do I want leather bound? Um, now, some of the sellers of the book would off like in-house bind, but at the print shop is not where they were doing the binding. That's very interesting. Right? Now the first folio has been made and printed it is out in the world. Let's look at the legacy of the first folio. Barely anything. It's easily forgotten. Everyone's just sad about descriptions of Leicestershire. Anywho. So the book was targeted at the upper class buyer, not just because of the price point, but you have that laid out in the introductory letters written by Henry Condell and John Hemmings, the prospective buyer. You know, they, they tried to paint it as it could be a book for anybody, but <laughs> it cost a pound. I tried to ask Emma Smith about how much would that be today? Well, the book cost a pound. And then you think, well, what, I mean, actually, what does that really mean? It's, it's, always quite hard to sort of pinpoint what that might mean. I think the school teacher in Stratford was paid something like £20 a year. It's a kind of three-week salary for that kind of a person. So it's, I mean, it's a significant sum compared with the sixpence or so that it might cost to go to the theatre or sixpence-ish probably for a, a single a single play book. But basically their idea was that they wanted to legitimise drama as literature. That's that's interesting because they were so successful that we can barely understand why it wouldn't be considered literature. One of the things I found really interesting is that we actually do know who one of the first buyers of the first folio was. Oh? Um, his name was Edward Daring. <laughs> of course it was. He'd take a chance on this. And in November of 1623... He bought Shakespeare's first folio and Johnson's folio. I think Emma Smith very succinctly explained who he was as a person. The first person we know to have bought a copy of the first folio is in November 1623, when Edward Deering, who is a, a, a young minor aristocrat, has a country seat in, uh, in Kent, comes up to London uh, and enjoys himself in a in a sort of dandy way. We, it's slightly unfair on Deering because we only really know about him because we've got his accounts. 
So it is like knowing somebody entirely from their credit card bill and thinking, God, all this person cares about is spending money. He's a really keen playgoer. He goes to the theatre a lot while he's in London. He is interested in amateur theatricals because he buys up some texts, but also some um, costumes to take back to Kent, where I think he's going to get his family and his sort of household to do plays back at home. Uh, and he's also keen to buy up a library of, of existing plays. One of the most interesting aspects of the conversation I had with Emma Smith that I do want to touch on here is how the the first folio contributed to our image of Shakespeare as a writer. And, and she listed out a couple reasons for this. The first is just the size of the book. That's what we mean when we say folio. We mean it's a big book. Uh, and that size has meant that this book has uh, been kept safe. There are lots of copies of it. It was part of what was important about preserving Shakespeare's works uh, for, for posterity. So of the plays from his period, we've probably lost about 80% of them because they weren't they, they weren't preserved, they weren't printed. Uh, so just the size of that book has kept those uh, plays safe. It also uh, has kept half the canon that we wouldn't have otherwise had. So a, a number of Shakespeare plays are published in single volume editions during his lifetime, but half of them are not. So if we didn't have the first folio, we wouldn't have Macbeth, we wouldn't have Twelfth Night, we wouldn't have Julius Caesar, we wouldn't have The Tempest. Uh, it's fair to think that those plays might have been lost, I think. And there's a third reason, quite literal reason, why it shaped our view of Shakespeare, and that's because of the portrait. So pr probably pretty much everybody can visualise that portrait of Shakespeare. He's got a bald head, he's got his head kind of balancing a bit Monty Python-y on a, a rough, a kind of a flat rough like a plate. Um, that etching is on everything, isn't it? It's easy to parody, it's easy to make a cartoon out of. Um, it's hard to imagine a, a, an artist, an author, if you don't have something visual to kind of attach that to. And I think having that visual image of Shakespeare has been really important for us, um, uh, sort of fleshing out what kind of a person might have, might have written these plays. And as I said before, 80%, up to 80% of what was written at the time has been lost half of Shakespeare's plays would have likely been lost. And I mean, we some of his plays, have a couple at least, that we know of have been lost. There's Love Labors 1, which was either a sequel to Love Labors Lost, or some people have suggested that it was an alternative title for a play we do have, such as Much Ado About Nothing. And then another play that was for sure lost was not an alternative title for anything, was Cardinio, which he wrote with John Fletcher. I asked Emma Smith why we might have lost these plays. and Why they weren't in the folio, I don't know. My hunch is that as part of trying to create this singular author figure, the Shakespeare who comes out of the folio, the, the actors who were putting the plays together were not so keen on collaborative work. They seem to have had a question mark in their minds about the play Timon of Athens, which we now attribute to Middleton along with Shakespeare. Certainly some of the other plays that since uh, since the first folio have been attributed to Shakespeare, or at least in part to Shakespeare, like particularly Pericles, which is now pretty clearly a Shakespeare play, but not in the first folio. But also Edward III, some people would argue Arden of Faversham is coming into view as a potentially Shakespearean uh, play. One argument would be if these are in part by Shakespeare, they're not in the folio because they don't add to this so solo genius kind of image. 
So even though now it's come to light that actually more of these were probably co-written than we originally believed, these were the ones that they couldn't, like Fletcher was still alive when like right. Folio was published. So it's not like they could be like, nope, just Shakespeare. Only Shakespeare wrote this. Whereas with Christopher Marlowe, he was already dead. So you don't have to give him credit. Well, it's a little easier to pretend that just Shakespeare wrote the Henry VI play. But that was one of the driving forces behind the legacy of the first folio is this idea of a singular author, which Hemings and Condell really tried to drive home with their he never plotted a line like it all came out of his head kind of notion. And to me, that's one of the most resounding legacies of the first folio is this image of the genius writer locked away in his room coming up with stories and characters characters purely out of his own beautiful imagination which is just not true <laughs> yeah. thank you for listening to ripe good scholar we hope you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com ep27 for even more information on shakespeare's first folio the show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us over on Twitter and Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going on all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art.